Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, if, if we've not met before, my name is Ben, and I get to share the word uh, with you this morning. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be together. Uh, if you have been around Eastridge the last few weeks, you know that we are in the book of Mark. We're studying the gospel according to Mark, and you can uh, turn to Mark chapter 3, 2 and 3 if you want, uh, while we're sort of catching up on the story. But I, I've really enjoyed this and, and appreciated this series in the book of Mark quite a bit. Uh, in the last like year and a half, year and change of my life, uh, in my personal Bible reading, I have just been like stuck on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just reading them over and over and over and over and over. Um, and we call these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we call them the Gospels. Um, really, if you, if you look in your Bible at what it says, it, it probably says the Gospel, singular, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is to say that the Gospel is singular. It's, it's one thing. It's the word about Jesus, right? And we get through the four Gospels in our Bible, we get to uh, read about this, this word about Jesus from different perspectives, uh, which is awesome. And I've, I've been... Uh, as we've been in uh, Mark and kind of going verse by verse through Mark, I've been struck by just the person of Jesus. So as I've been studying the Gospels and, and reading about Jesus, I've been struck by the person of Jesus. And, and you know, uh, Jesus' words are like nothing else. They're like nothing else. They, they have the power to just like pierce deeply into people's hearts and, uh, and they, they have life-giving, life-transforming power. But even, even more than that, just the very person of Jesus I have been so struck by the fact that Jesus is like no one else that has ever existed on the planet. That Jesus is something completely unique and something new and something that God is doing, uh, that God has done in human history in a very unique way. And uh, we're actually going to kind of look at that a little bit today. And we're going to look at a passage that helps us really meet this unique Jesus, this person of Jesus. So I hope that as we open the word that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the words and that we can encounter not just the things that Jesus says and does, but we can actually encounter the real present Jesus that is here with us and that, that has uh, actually done something to transform human life. Uh, last week, just to catch us up, at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, uh, we started uh, we started something that in the storyline that's going to continue to be significant throughout the story of Mark, uh, which is that Jesus began making pretty significant and startling claims about himself. Do you remember this? Last week, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed his whole life, and, uh, and he said, uh, before he healed this man, he said that, he, he's, that this man's sins were forgiven. So he, he forgave this man's sins, uh, which is uh, a kind of a claim of authority in, of, in and of itself. And then to prove that he had authority to do that, he healed this man physically, and this man got up and walked. And, uh, and, and not only that, but remember last week, he called himself the Son of Man, right? Called himself the Son of Man, which we know is a, a reference to the Hebrew Bible, specifically to uh, uh, Daniel chapter 7. And the people Jesus was speaking to would have had this phrase, Son of Man, sort of living in their imagination. They would have been really uh, looking for, who is this Son of Man? And, and when is the Son of Man going to show up? In their mind, they would have thought, when they heard Son of Man, they would have thought divine human, or the human being who is really God, the divine among us, to uh, rectify the broken human situation that we've gotten ourselves into. So when, when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man and claims to be able to forgive sins and, and heals this man to prove that he can forgive sins, he's making some pretty audacious claims about himself. And he 
begins to ruffle some feathers, right? In chapter 2 of Mark, we start to see his, we see his first uh, conflict with the Pharisees or the, these religious teachers that we meet, and that conflict is just going to intensify. In fact, what we're going to read today is also going to intensify that conflict that Jesus has with these religious leaders, and we're going to find out why. We're going to find out what it is that Jesus is actually saying about himself and what he's actually saying about what he's calling us to. So let's open up to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So, uh, John, this is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, the guy that came to sort of uh, announce that Jesus was coming. You know, he came and said, prepare, prepare, the Son of Man is about to come, the Messiah is coming, the one we've waited for, prepare yourself, turn to God, repent, it's time, right? And, and, and John had these followers, these disciples, and as part of their uh, religious experience connecting to God, they were engaging in this, fact, this practice of fasting, right? Same thing with the Pharisees. They were engaging in this, this kind of central thing that they did as one of their spiritual practices, fasting, which is right, abstaining from food, okay? So they were doing this in order to connect with God more deeply. We're going to kind of unpack what that practice looks like uh, a little bit later. But people come to Jesus, and they ask him a really interesting question. They say, listen, Jesus, John's disciples, man, we respect John, and we know that he is all in for living rightly before God. They're fasting, the Pharisees, man, if there was ever a group of people who wanted to honor God with their religious practices and lives, it was these Pharisees. They want to get it all right in order to honor and glorify God, and they also are fasting. So Jesus, if you are a spiritual leader, why aren't your disciples fasting? And inherent in this question is actually a, a, a sort of a, a step further, because the story right before this one in, in, in Mark chapter 2 was the story where after Jesus had healed the paralyzed man, he goes and he calls Matthew, the tax collector. And then when he calls Matthew, he goes over to Matthew's house, invites all the sinners and the public sinners and tax collectors, all the evil people, he invites them all over to uh, Matthew's house, and he shares a big meal with them. And Jesus was actually kind of becoming known for this, for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and throwing these big forgiveness parties, these big like feast times with God, God being present amongst the sinners. And so when they're saying, why aren't your guys fasting? They're not just saying, see, they're fasting and they're fasting. You should be fasting. They're saying, not only are you not fasting, but you're throwing these big feasts. You're throwing these big parties. That is not what religious devotion to God looks like, Jesus. I think you've kind of missed the boat right? Why aren't you fasting? There's the, all this kind of inherent in this question. And Jesus, who is, who is brilliant. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is the smartest man to have ever walked the face of the earth. It's brilliant. Jesus responds to their question by asking a question. I love this. Verse 19, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. So he paints this picture of a wedding celebration, okay? He says, the bridegroom, when the bridegroom is here, you can't fast. Now, in those days, your, your whole world was like your close-knit village community, right? And the, the highlight of your year, probably the highlight of every five years, because it probably didn't happen every year, but was when two people in your village got married, and there was a wedding celebration, and it would last for seven days, and it would just be celebration and joy and singing and dancing and congratulating the couple and just celebrating their new life together, and it was awesome. And what Jesus is doing is painting a picture of a wedding celebration where there's one person in the corner 
totally abstaining from the festivities and just saying, no thanks, I'm fasting, right? It's downright rude. They're throwing this party. We're celebrating somebody else and somebody's making it all about them. No, 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 I'm, I'm fasting. So you guys have fun. I'm gonna sit in the corner and pray while I fast, right? And Jesus is like, that would be absurd. If you went to a party, a wedding celebration, the bridegroom and the bride were there, why, how, how could you possibly fast? It's also interesting that Jesus brings up this phrase bridegroom, this word bridegroom. Um, in the Old Testament, there's lots of references to the Son of Man, Messiah, the one who is to come. Uh, but those references usually didn't really involve this term bridegroom. However, God the Father, God Yahweh, the creator God that had covenanted himself to his people, Israel, that God was often called a bridegroom. He was often referred to as the, the bridegroom of his people, Israel. And, and Israel was, the people of God was, was the bride, right? And God had pledged himself to this bride, right? And oftentimes he was a bridegroom who was wronged because, because he, the people of Israel would wander away, right? But he was often referred to as a bridegroom, wooing his people, right? And so when Jesus brings up this idea of bridegroom, he's really saying, because he knows who his listeners are, he knows that they're Pharisees and they're religious Jewish folk, He's bringing up this picture of, yeah, they, they could fast. Fasting's not bad. But why would they fast when the bridegroom, or in other words, when God himself is here? Why would they fast when God is here among them? So he points out a couple things that I think are, are really interesting about fasting, right? He seems to suggest that fasting is for the purpose of connecting to God. And that if God is here present with you, that there is no need to fast. I love that he doesn't say, well, why aren't we fasting? Because fasting is over and done. We don't fast anymore, right? Jesus doesn't, doesn't knock fasting. He doesn't say it's a bad idea. In fact, in a moment, he's gonna say it's a good idea. And in fact, in my, in my life, I've recently been discovering the value and joy of spiritual fasting, of abstaining from food, fasting from food in order to feast upon God and to remember that it is God and his word that sustains, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we learn that through this practice of abstaining, of, of, of fasting. See, these practices like, like fasting, and, and we're going to learn about Sabbath keeping in a moment, are, are sort of about getting something out of our life and getting something out of the way, pressing pause on something in our life in order to have a clearer connection between us and God. And so what Jesus is saying is fasting is for the purpose of connecting and meeting God, knowing God better, and yet God is here with you in some way, and, and, and there's no need to fast at the moment. In fact, look what he says next. He says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then on that day they will fast. So why aren't your disciples eating? Well, because the bridegroom is here, or why aren't they fasting? Because the bridegroom is here with them, but there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken, he continues this, this picture of a wedding feast. And imagine this. You're at this big wedding celebration, this huge seven-day party. The whole community's there. It's awesome. You're just like celebrating this new couple. It's going to be amazing. You're going to have a great life together. It's awesome. And then, all of a sudden, some people come in and forcibly take the bridegroom. And everyone's just left in shock. Jesus is painting that picture. Again, he's foreshadowing as he continues to do throughout the entire book of Mark. He's foreshadowing to what is going to happen. He's saying the bridegroom is here, but there are people who are plotting to just take him from you. And on that day, what will happen? They will fast. See, Jesus affirms fasting as a spiritual practice, but what he does is he reminds us that the purpose of fasting is to connect us 
to God. And in some way, Jesus is saying in some mysterious way that we're going to really figure out here in a minute, but in in some mysterious way, God is actually currently present, so why would they fast? And then he goes on, um, he goes on to sort of un- unpack it even a little more. So someone has asked him, right, why are these people fasting and these people fasting and your disciples are not fasting? And in answer to the question, Jesus goes on with this really cryptic pair of pictures. Okay, he says this. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. For the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours wine into old wineskins, otherwise the, wines, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And I will be honest with you that for most of my Christian life, this particular set of micro parables that Jesus gives has been very puzzling to me. And I've really had to wrestle with it this week. Be like, what is Jesus trying to say? And I've had to pray about it. God, show me. What, what is it you're trying to say to me through this little section of parables? And, and I've, I've recognized that this section is actually part of Jesus' answer to why his disciples aren't fasting. He gives us the wedding, the wedding feast picture, but then this is also part of the answer. So in what way is this responding to the question about fasting? And I think, I think the answer to that question comes in, in Jesus' is use of the words old and new, right? Old garment, new patch, right? New wine, old wineskin. And what's going to happen, right? Let's unpack this picture a little bit. What's going to happen if you sew a new piece of cloth onto an old garment? When you wash them and dry them, right? The new piece of cloth is going to shrink. It's going to tear away. The garment's going to be worse than before, basically unwearable. In the same way, when you pour new wine into an old wineskin, in those days a wineskin was literally a skin. It was a skin of an animal, some leather. And if it was old, it was probably brittle, right, and dry. And so if you pour new wine in there, what's that wine going to do? It's going to ferment and expand. And pretty soon the pressure is going to get so much that the, new, the old wineskin just bursts. So you've got to pour it into a new wineskin where it has room to grow and can stretch a little bit and doesn't burst. And what Jesus is saying is, in some way, what I'm doing with my disciples is similar to this old and new thing going on, to this, this, this new thing that the old thing can't quite handle. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is, is talking about something that he came to, to begin, something that he came to start. Jesus, in some way, is talking about how he's doing a new thing. All throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we hear about these covenants that God makes with his people. Right? With Abraham in Genesis 12, he makes the Abrahamic covenant. I will bring a people out of your line that will be my people. Right? With Moses in Exodus, he creates the, the Mosaic covenant, which is if you keep these laws and, and you follow me with these laws that reveal my will, I will bless you in these ways and I will lead you into the promised land. With King David, he makes what's called the Davidic covenant, right? which is that, David, you're a king, and like you're a, just like you're a king, there will come one who is not just a, a great local king, but is the perfect, ultimate, and universal and forever ruler of the world. That's the Davidic covenant. But all through these covenants in the Old Testament is, is referenced something. So, something, is, is, the prophets speak of it, and they keep talking about one day we have all these covenants with God, but one day we will have what they call the new covenant, which is when God will come and do a new thing. He won't just say, here's our promises to each other. He'll come and do something brand new, unlike anything he's done before. He will actually change the game. 
I think what Jesus is saying here is that he is inaugurating the new covenant. See, check this out. This is Jeremiah 31, and this is a a, a reference to the new covenant that is in the Hebrew Bible. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, right? It's going to be new. It's going to be different. When I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. There's that bridegroom imagery, right? God is committing himself as a husband. I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with, my pe- with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. See, every other covenant that God had made with his people was about something God was going to do externally right? He was going to reveal his will to his people through the Torah, through Abraham, through David, their leader. He was going to reveal his will to the people. It was a revelation, a covenant of revelation, and then they got to choose to follow it, right? To follow him, to be faithful to him. In this case, he's talking not about an external covenant. He's talking about an internal transformation, right? I'm not just going to tell you what my law is. I'm going to put my law in your minds, and I'm going to write it on your hearts. I'm actually going to change the kind of person you are. That's what he's promising to do in the new covenant. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What Jeremiah is saying, what God is saying through Jeremiah is that there will come a time when it's no longer Pharisees and and disciples of John going, no, this is the right way to God. No, this is the right way to God. No, we really have the understanding. No, God is really pleased with us more than he's pleased with the others. You need to follow our way. They won't say no God in these ways, right? Because we will all know God. What God is saying here through Jeremiah is that the new covenant is an internal transformation that will actually connect us directly and personally to our creator God. It is a radical transformation of what a human being is. That is the new covenant. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. It's a covenant that begins with forgiveness and continues into radical internal transformation to make us a new kind of people. That is the new covenant promised. And what Jesus, I think, is saying in this wineskins and cloth thing is, guess what? That new thing we've been waiting for, I'm doing it. Why aren't my disciples fasting? It's not because fasting is bad. Fasting can be very good, but it is because the new covenant is here. The new way of relating to God is here. It's no longer the old system of I have to go to temple and I have to fill all these commands and I have to do all this stuff in order to have God's favor The new covenant that is just a gift of God's favor that actually transforms what kind of person you are is here. That's why my disciples aren't fasting. As I was thinking through this and wrestling with this passage and what does this mean and what does this mean for me, God? I don't know what I would do. I was reading some commentaries like I often do to get ready for the sermon and I don't normally quote uh, commentaries in sermons because they're, they're usually really boring, but there was a couple sentences from one of them that uh, has been stuck with me all week. I can't get it out of my mind. I keep praying through it, and I think it really nails the heart of what Jesus is saying in these two little micro parables about the cloth and the wineskin. It says this, okay? The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and by the two Adam-like parables 
is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on or refilling an old container, not whether they will make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives, but the question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, or whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. Let me read that last sentence again. Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. What Jesus is saying is, you want the new covenant, you have to let me make you a new creation. You, have to be, you can't just go in the old patterns. I didn't come, Jesus is saying, to patch up an old system. I didn't come just to say, yes, they're fasting and they're fasting. All right, disciples, so we're going to fast twice as hard and twice as long. I didn't come for that. I didn't come to beat them at their own game. I came to rewrite the rules. I came to win the game and then just celebrate with you guys, right? I came to do something totally new and different. If you want the new covenant and the kingdom that Jesus is offering, you have to become a new kind of thing. And I love this picture of, of the wine being poured in to these old wineskins. First of all, for, for like a million reasons. First of all, because wine in the Bible is usually a symbol of blood or of life. So Jesus is talking about pouring life, pouring his life into you, right? And, and I also love it because, uh, because what does wine do when it's in there? It ferments and expands, right? The expanding fermentation of Jesus in the gospel, which tells me this. When Jesus comes into your life, right, and roots himself in there, he begins to expand and his kingdom starts to expand within you and take over more and more and more of your life. And if, if you've been following Jesus for a while, you know this. If you're new, you will come to know this in, in experience. But uh, there will come a time there will come a time, if there hasn't already, there probably will again come a time when Jesus will reach a point of your life, some area of your life, something that, uh, that he wants control over, and you're like, oh, no, 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 that's mine, right? There will come a time when he is asking you to give something up or to do something that is extremely uncomfortable, and it will be a test. It will be a question of whether or not you trust him to be the ultimate authority in your life. Because see, all of us, when we come to trust Jesus, we mean it. Oh man, we mean it, right? But later on in our journey, we find out that we've actually drawn all these lines in our life saying, Jesus, you may go this far, but no further in my life. And as he expands, if we are new wineskins, it can hurt, it can be hard, but we stretch and expand with him because we trust him and we let him into the areas of our life that are hard and scary and that we don't want to give up, Right? But if we're the old wineskin, if we're operating by old standards of I do this, this, and this, then God is pleased with me and things go my way. If we're living in an old system, then Jesus begins to push at those areas of our lives and what can happen is that we break. We break. And many people uh, in my generation uh, who are sitting here as Jesus followers have had the experience that I've had so much lately where people uh, that, that I know and love are just walking away. We're at the stage in life where people are starting to just like peace out on Jesus and be like, we're done, right? And some people are being, really being angry about it. I have friends who are starting podcasts about how destructive religion is and how people kept them captive in believing in Jesus and all this kind of stuff because they just feel so, they, they feel like they can't follow Jesus anymore. And, and I've been wondering, what is it that happens? What happens to a person when it seems like out of nowhere they just break and they're gone? And I think this is it. 
I think as we grow in Christ, he reaches areas of our lives that we really have to question, am I ready to give that up to the Lord and let him be Lord even of that part? Am I willing to let his kingdom expand into every area of my life, every part of my kingdom and influence? Am I, am I ready to let him be king of all of it? And there comes a point in some people's lives when they say, no, I'm just not. And the wineskin breaks, and they walk away. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to follow me fully, then when I push on those areas of your life and I expand throughout your being and your everything you do, you have to be willing to let me go there. And so Jesus sort of gives this warning. And then I think, I think probably the, the, the Pharisees sort of walk away like befuddled, like, what? what? I'm not really, con- I'm confused on what this means, right? And I don't understand what Jesus is tri- driving at. And so uh, the next story actually is another confrontation with Jesus and the Pharisees. And he's going to get a little, even a little clearer on what he's doing, on the new thing, the new covenant that he's bringing, okay? This is verse 23. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They're, they're picking grain, which is technically harvesting, which you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And see, the Pharisees, we can look at them and be like, oh, what a, what a bunch of dummies. Or we can think about them like, like, uh, like, like as if they're from Jesus Christ Superstar the movie or something, and just like evil and plotting and like, oh, let's get him. Uh, but in reality, what were the Pharisees? They were people who saw God's will who, that was revealed in the law, and they said, we want to devote our lives to following that law, doing everything we can to keep his commands. That is honorable stuff, right? That's, that's awesome, right? On the surface of it, that's pretty awesome. And so what they did is they, they looked at all these commands and especially the command for Sabbath keeping because Sabbath keeping was sort of the sign of their covenant, okay? For Abraham and Abraham's descendants, the, the, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. For the Mosaic covenant and all the laws of the Torah, the sign, like the symbol, the one, the one thing that made them different from everybody else was Sabbath keeping, okay? That was the, a unique thing for this group of people that God had given them. And so they're like, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath, to have this day of rest to the Lord? What does it mean? And they came up with all these other rules and regulations about how, what you could do on the Sabbath, what you couldn't do, how far you could walk, if you could pick up your children, that sort of thing, for real. It was all these extreme commands that they had. And one of them was you can't do any sort of harvesting. You can't pick any grain. You can't do anything like that, okay? So they come up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you claim to be from God, but your disciples are dishonoring God's command. What are you doing? Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? God is not going to be pleased. And then in response, Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament. He says this in verse 25. He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In those days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. So he brings up a story from the Old Testament where David had been anointed king, but Saul was still hanging onto the throne, so David was running around the desert hiding with all of his followers. And they come to a, a place of worship for God. And, and they go into the, this place of worship, and it's the Sabbath. And the day before the Sabbath, the people would all, they would leave special loaves of bread on the altar for the priests to eat on the Sabbath so that the priests didn't have to work and make food. They would be sustained by this offering, okay? So they go in, and they start eating the bread to survive, 
They start eating the bread that is lawful only for priests to eat. And Jesus is saying, look, there's precedent for this in the Old Testament. He's starting to say, you guys are missing the point of Sabbath keeping. Look, even David, even David didn't always follow the Sabbath command in the way that you think he should. And it's kind of confusing. It's like, well, Jesus, what are you saying? That we can just choose, pick and choose when to follow your commands? Is that what you're saying? That like when it's convenient, we should do what God says, but when it's not convenient, we shouldn't? What, what are you saying, Jesus? And I think, I think uh, he, what he's doing is getting us ready to hear his next two phrases, which are really his explanation of why he brings us all up in the first place. He says two things that are profound and unsettling. Verse 27, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He says, listen, all these rules and regulations, they were given to human beings for their own sake. They're a gift from God, rather than human beings being created only for law-keeping. And see, for, for the Pharisees, the whole point of human life was to keep the law of God, was to do all the spiritual practices and do them just right and be a very prim and proper good church person. That was the point of human existence. And Jesus is saying, if that's the point of your existence, then you are missing the point. What is the Sabbath? It's a revelation of God's goodness. It's God saying, hey, I'm taking care of you, so why don't you have a day of rest? It is a gift of God giving us rest and a pause from all of our striving. And what Jesus is saying is you are missing the very thing to which Sabbath is pointing. All these laws and rules, you're following them all, but you're missing the thing that they're pointing you to. Right? Fasting isn't bad, but it's meant to keep you connected to God. Sabbath keeping isn't bad, but it's meant to celebrate the goodness of God and the generosity of God and all the attributes of God. And it's sort of like the Pharisees are, are sort of like a, like, like a dog. You know, like when, you, when, you are, when you're trying to get a dog to look somewhere, you're like, look over there, look over there. And then what does it do? It comes up and smells your finger, right? That's sort of what they're doing. They're obsessing about the pointer rather than what it's pointing to. And Jesus is saying, listen, the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is here, Yahweh is here, and you are missing him because you're obsessed with religious action. You're obsessed with all these regulations and practices and rules instead of letting them lead you to the one who gave them to you. In fact, look at his next sentence. So Sabbath was not made for man, uh, but or man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Then it says, so the son of man... Remember, that's Jesus' name that he claimed for himself in Mark chapter 2, right? The Son of Man, the divine human, is Lord even of the Sabbath. What's he saying? Who, Who is Lord of the Sabbath? It's God. The one who rested on the seventh day of creation and instituted the Sabbath and gave it to his people as a gift to celebrate his goodness and generosity, he is Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, me, the Son of Man, I am Lord of the Sabbath, Which is to say, Jesus is basically saying the bridegroom, the God of the covenant, the creator Yahweh God is here and I am he. And I am he. You are missing, Jesus is saying, me because you're so stuck on all these religious practices and rules and regulations. See, Jesus is not anti-Sabbath keeping. He's anti-missing out. 
anti-missing out on all that God is trying to bring into our lives through Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I want to pour this new wine into you, and you have to be ready for it to just expand and overflow because I'm doing a new thing, the likes of which has never been seen before in the world. And if you're stuck in this old way of being, you're going to miss the wedding celebration, and you're not going to be able to handle it when I expand through your whole life. See, uh, I I think Jesus uh, knows that all these practices that he's given us, all these awesome scripture reading and, and scripture memorization and, and prayer and church going, these amazing good practices, he knows that our tendency as human beings is to make our whole lives about the tool rather than the thing the tool is meant to lead us to, right? We start to miss the thing itself when we're just obsessed about all of our practices, And you know what? Sometimes I can get obsessed about my practices and be like, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? Am I doing it in the right way? Oh no, is God happy with me? Oh no, oh no. But more often than that, I can get obsessed with somebody else's practices. I can be like, are they really doing all that God wants them to do? Are they really reading their Bible enough? And we start to evaluate people by their spiritual practices rather than by their Christ-likeness and letting Christ's life just permeate all of their being. We start to evaluate people by their external practices rather than what Jesus is doing in bringing the new covenant in their lives. So Jesus is saying, do the Sabbath, sure. Do the fasting, sure. Pray, read your Bible, go to church. These are important things that God gave us. We should probably do them, right? If God gave gave us these things to connect with him, it'd be a good idea to do it. But he's saying, don't miss the one who is Lord even of your Bible reading. Don't miss the one in your prayers. Don't miss the one who is Lord even of your prayer time. Let me permeate through all of your life. In fact, let's check out this verse from Romans chapter, or a couple of verses from Romans chapter 14. It says, one person, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. It says, one person uh, considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. We live, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And for this very reason, Christ died to return and return to life that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. What is he saying? He's saying if we do a spiritual practice, we must be careful to do it to the Lord. And if someone else does not do it, we can't judge that person. The question is not what practices are they doing, but are they doing them to the Lord? And there are some things you cannot do to the Lord, right? Some sinful things you cannot do to the Lord. There are some practices you cannot ignore and say, I'm ignoring those for the Lord right? This just doesn't work. But he's saying, whatever you do in all of your life, what does he say? Live for the Lord. Die for the Lord. And who is the Lord? Well, it says in the last sentence, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. What Paul is saying here is Jesus doesn't just want your spiritual practices. He doesn't just want the time you've set aside for church going and the time you've set aside for devotions in the morning and the time you've set aside for for discipleship over coffee. He doesn't just want those times. He wants all of the time. He wants to be Lord of your whole life. 
See, what Jesus is talking about here with the Pharisees is the Pharisees had this very specific list of what is sacred. Sabbath keeping is sacred. Fasting is sacred. These practices, sacred. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to do a new work, a new covenant in your heart and so permeate every aspect of your being and your life that everything in your life becomes sacred. As we begin to let him push out the boundaries of his lordship in our lives, and we begin to let him permeate us as a new wineskin, and we ask him, Lord, make me this new receptacle for everything you're doing in my life. As we begin to do that slowly over time, more and more of our life becomes permeated with his presence. And we, we find that all of our time is sacred. Not just our Bible reading, but also the drive to work. Not just our prayer time at night, but also our, our work on the computer, answering emails, right? And we soon start to discover that we don't just have a devotional life, we have a life of devotion. And we don't just have a prayer life, but we have a praying life where all things come under his, his rule and all things are permeated with his presence. See, spiritual practices can look super different to, super di- to all different people. There are some that the Bible commands us, so probably let's do those, like coming to church. Great idea because the Bible says we should do it. But also there are some things that might look different. I have a friend right now who is practicing the spiritual discipline of driving in the slow lane. <laughs> For real. And I was like, I should try that. So probably 50% of the time I actually make it. The other 50% of the time I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't. But when I go to the slow lane, I'm like, Lord, I'm going to go to the slow lane right now to, uh, to remember that you are in control of my time and that I don't need to hurry because you have got this. And I'm going to drive in the slow lane, not just because, I'm going to drive in the slow lane as to the Lord, like it says in Romans, right? And there are things you can do in your life to practice connecting to God's presence that are beyond just your Bible. He wants to do more. He just wants to do more. He wants to pour that lifeblood, that new wine into you. And he wants to expand into every corner of your being. And you might ask, well, like, that, that's a lot. <laughs> that seems like a high calling. That seems really overwhelming. Only saints live like that, Ben. And I, I want to say that, um, that Jesus doesn't just expect you to sacrifice everything and get nothing in return. What is it he's pouring into you, your new wineskin? It's his new wine, which is his life. He's not just inviting you to, to, to just give up everything and live a humdrum, miserable life. He's inviting you to experience his aliveness. And there was no one in the world, there's never been anyone in the world who brought the kind of life Jesus did. He's, ex- he's inviting you to experience his life in every corner of your being. So ask yourself, as I've been asking myself this week, I have a friend at work named Joe, and we've been talking about uh, all week long, we were, are, are you going to be a new receptacle today? Are you going to be a brand new kind of, of being for God to pour his gospel and, and his spirit into that just expands? Through are you going to do that today? And the answer that we keep coming to is, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask the Lord to make me willing. I'm going to ask the Lord to show me how to do that. I'm going to ask the Lord to make me that new wineskin so that as he expands through my life, his life begins to be lived out and all of my life becomes sacred. See, Jesus isn't mad at Sabbath keeping or at fasting. He's mad when those things make us miss the point. 
And to close here, in chapter 3, at the very beginning of chapter 3, we have sort of, Jesus gives us like a, a, just he acts out what this would really look like if we were really to do this. And he shows us sort of in an experiment, he's like, this is what it would mean for you to really live this way. It says this in chapter 3, verse 1, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, being the Pharisees, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So he's asking them, okay, you guys, it's Sabbath. We're here in the synagogue because it's Sabbath. We're doing our spiritual practices. Let's, let's test. Let's see if people can really get what the point is. What, what's the point of Sabbath? Is it good or evil? Is it healing Is it giving life or is it taking life? What's the point of all these practices that we do? And they're all dumbfounded, right? They're looking for a reason to trap Jesus, but they themselves begin to feel trapped. They're all silent. They don't even, they're speechless. They don't know how to respond, right? And Jesus is like, no, for real, I'm actually asking, what is the Sabbath for? All this religious stuff, all these songs we sing, all these scriptures we read, all these prayers we make, all this gathering together in the synagogue, what is it all for? about. And they're silent. Verse 5, so then he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Seems extreme. They didn't say anything, Jesus. Why are you so mad? Because the proper response, when you recognize what all of our spiritual practices are for, the proper response when Jesus is there in front of you is to kneel down before him and say, you are the point. You are the reason. You are the fullest revelation of God's goodness, right? All these things are meant to connect us to God. And what is the ultimate connection we have to God? It is Jesus Christ, who has made a way for us to know him and to know the Father through his death and resurrection on the cross. So Jesus is angry and distressed. They cannot see it. They're missing out because they're so blinded by their spiritual checklist, by their old system, and they can't see the new thing that God is trying to do in front of them. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Two things. Uh, It might sound really scary, might sound really scary when we talk about Jesus pushing at the boundaries of our lives and, and, and demanding or asking, inviting access to even the scariest places in our lives, the things we don't want to give up or the things we don't want to have to do that he is calling us to that make us deeply uncomfortable to think about. And, and it's so, it can be so hard in that moment to say, oh, Jesus, yeah, I want you even though I'm scared, even though I'm worried. So he, he's not just offering... He is offering total renovation, right? Going to totally renovate who you are in every corner of your being, but that's not all. He's not just offering total renovation. He's offering total restoration, like the man who stretched out his hand and it was whole, right? He stretched it out just like the wineskin will get stretched out and it will be hard and it will push, but it is to restore you. See, the places where we don't want Jesus to go in our lives, the things we're holding on to for ourselves, the things that we refuse to do and step out in faith, these are usually the most broken things in our lives, are they not? They're usually the places where we need the most help. 
And Jesus is not just offering to bash through those walls and, and renovate the whole life. He is offering restoration where we are most broken. Jesus isn't demanding everything and giving you nothing. He's giving his very self. He's pouring, he wants to pour it into you like wine and begin to permeate every part of your life. Can you imagine if every part of your, your mind, your thought life, every part of your life, your actual schedule and calendar, from, can you imagine if it was permeated with the presence of the sacrificial love of Jesus? What would that be like? It's what he's offering. It's really, really what he's offering. If we let our practices lead us to him rather than blind us to him, if we truly can abandon ourselves to him in this way, and what happens when Jesus says all this and does all this, the Pharisees go out and plot with the Herodians how we're going to kill him. Why? Like, just let the guy be. Why do we got to kill him? Because their minds had been blown. Because they could not compute what Jesus was offering. Because their wineskins had burst. They were not willing to go all the way into new covenant with Jesus. They said, no, 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 no. The old system works just fine and it keeps us on top. So we are good to go. I don't want this new scary thing you're offering. It breaks their categories. It bursts their wineskins. And the only thing that they can think to do is we got to get rid of this man. And that might sound extreme to you, except that when Jesus begins to push on those boundaries that we've set up in our lives and we're like, no, Jesus, please don't go there. Don't demand that of me, please. When he starts to push on those things, we can either kneel down and say, yes, okay, Lord, please help me. I can't, I can't do this on my own. Please help me to be willing and to follow and to let you. Or the alternative is just to try to kill that voice. Kill that voice of Jesus. No, 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 no. He's not really saying that. No, I won't really listen to that. No, 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 no. And just like the Pharisees go plot how to kill Jesus, we begin to plot how to kill the voice of Jesus within us, demanding and, and, and asking us to move further with him. And, and you know, um, the Pharisees choose death. But the miracle is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he's offering us a chance to choose life, to choose to let the author of life into every corner of our thought life and our being and our schedule and if we surrender to him, he will do it. He has made a way. Where there is no way, he has made a way through his body and his blood poured out, shed, broken on the cross. So in a moment, we're going to take communion. When we do, I'm going to invite you to come get the elements and then take them back to your seats and we'll take them all together. Uh, and as we come to this table, you know, this is something Jesus taught us to do as Christians. If you're a Christian... You've experienced the love of Jesus and the rescue of Jesus in your life. This is for you. If you're not a Jesus follower, there's no shame in just staying in your seat. That's okay. But we invite you to come to the tables and remember that Jesus is not asking anything of you that he is not willing to give himself, right? He's asking you to lay down your life, but he has already laid down his. And he has brought new life from his death and wishes to bring new life into you as well. So as we come to the tables, we'll remember that. Uh, feel free to come to any of these stations, the gluten-free ones in the back corner, and then bring the elements back to your seat. The tables will be open after I pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for your person. Thank you for the fact that you are teaching us how to become new vessels for you and your kingdom. Jesus, I surrender. I surrender uh, my right to choose where and how far you'll go in my life. 
Jesus, uh, without you, without your help, I am not willing to let you permeate my whole being. So I just ask that you would make me, that you would make us willing. I want, I want to be willing to let you permeate my whole life. Would you make us new wineskins, Lord? Would you make us new receptacles for your presence and your gospel? And would you just expand into every corner of our life and make everything in our life sacred with your presence? Thank you for your gift of your death and resurrection. May we be mindful of you as we take it. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.